Wow. What a blessing to be able to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth this morning. I tell you, it's, um, it's pretty exciting to be able to be here this morning and to be able to share uh, the gospel and to be able to preach uh, the way that Jesus would like. Um, I'm so excited to be able to be uh, dealing with the topic we're going to be dealing with today. And I encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 3 as we are marching through this book in, a, um, in my opinion, a relatively rapid pace, uh, breakneck speed, if you will. Um, and it's, it's sad that we're not going to be able to uh, dive as deeply into every passage as I would like. Uh, but part of the reason why that is is because we do have our adult Sunday school um, that's uh, in person, face to face, and uh, we're kind of excited about having uh, that time after the service to be able to gather together and um, dive a little deeper. Um, our uh, Sunday school teacher, Mike, uh, Brother Mike, is uh, does a very good job of uh, bringing out that uh, message and giving an opportunity for us to ask some of those questions that that we just can't ask in the middle of a sermon. Uh, so that being said. Uh, we're going to dive right in this, and I'm really going to focus heavily on the first part of this uh, uh, this chapter, largely because this is the part of the chapter I think that God really wants me to bring out, uh, and the other part of it is, is the second half of this chapter deals mostly with the message that Peter gave um, after the, the healing, and I really feel like God is, is calling us to look deeply into the first 10 verses of this, maybe 11, and see what, what he has for us to know about uh, the, uh, I guess, the beginning of, of, of this message. And I, I actually, of all the sermons that I had get to preach out of this book, um, in the, particularly the book of Acts, uh, is this is one of the chapters that I think is, is truly my, my favorite. Um, I've entitled this sermon, A Gate Called Beautiful. Um, in times past, I've preached it out of this chapter, and I've called the sermons, you know, different things. So it usually has uh, some reference to beautiful, like beauty for ashes, or um, just simply beautiful. Uh, I think that that sort of sums up my uh, understanding of this. But really, when you look at this, chapter 3, 4, and 5 sort of begin, or there's sort of a triumvirate, if you will, or kind of a, a three-chapter uh, uh, synopsis or, or setting of, uh, of of the work that Jesus was doing through the disciples, through the Holy Spirit in the town of Jerusalem. Um, all three of those chapters set or uh, take place in uh, the city of Jerusalem, and there seems to be. Um, uh, a lot of activity around that. And they have three basic activity points that they are looking at. Um, they're looking at the temple, they're looking at in their homes, and they're looking at the Sanhedrin. And we're going to be looking at all three of those in the next, uh, well, the next three weeks as we begin to look at uh, the chapters um, that we're dealing with. And I think it's important that we understand this because um, there's a reason why these three areas are, are chosen. And one of the biggest reasons is, is that um, God wants to give us a pattern for how we should, how we should worship and how we should go about our daily Christian walk. Um, the home, which was more where the activity was centered heavily around, was a place of renewal. So they would gather together in homes and they would worship, break bread together, they would take communion together, they would, they would share their lives, they would live life with each other in the homes. That was a place of spiritual renewal and a sort of a vivaciousness that would bubble up through their ministry that would start in the home and then it would sort of overflow. And then they would go to the temple to witness 
about who Jesus Christ was because their primary people they were trying to witness to at the time was the nation of Israel. And then the third place that they had a lot of activity was in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of the Jews at the time. And because they were the ruling council, they also had authority over spiritual matters and specifically over church, what's happening within the polity of the church. And they end up putting the church on trial, the young church on trial. And so you see this is the area that the church focused a lot of their, temp- their attention on defense. Now remember what I told you a couple weeks ago that this document more than likely was compiled by Luke as a means of tracking uh, the activity of, of the disciples uh, during this first century time, and it would have been probably a court document that was submitted to the court of Nero, who would have originally tried Paul. Now, the reason why we say that is because there's a lot of evidence of that in the uh, interior of this, uh, this narrative, but also if you look at the where it ends, it ends with Paul awaiting trial. Uh, we know that he went, tri- went to trial, and there's a lot of tradition that says that he actually was released from prison um, after that first trial, and then he was later uh, re-arrested uh, on other uh, charges later on in, uh, in the life of the, the emperor at the time and was eventually executed. We feel like that um, there's a good chance that Paul might have actually made it all the way to uh, Spain. We don't know for certain, but that was definitely his goal. He mentions that in his writings. And so we know that's where his heart was as he was moving throughout the entire Roman Empire and with a desire to see it all. And and I would think that if it were possible, and I don't know if it, it happened or not, that God would have allowed Paul to do that as he was the uh, he was the, gen- the apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, the furthest part of the kingdom of the Gentiles was all the way through to Spain. And that was the direction that he was going, that Roman Empire is what he was trying to reach. So, that being said, let's go ahead and move right into this. Um, as we're looking at what uh, what God is doing in the life of the first century church through his uh, primary apostles, and that was Peter and John. Let's go ahead and read. Follow along with me as we read through the first ten verses. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us! And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap he stood up, stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw saw him walking and praising God. And they were, ta- they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the gate beautiful of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at all that had happened. And we just skip right over, we'll go right over to verse 11. And it says, While he, the man that was lame, was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the, at, at, um, to them, uh, at the so-called portico of Solomon, or Solomon's porch, in full, um, uh, full of amazement. So, that's sort of the, the chapter, uh, the, the part we're going to look at, and, and if we can get further, we will, but I don't think our time will allow us to do that. 
And it's important as we look at this, obviously we're dealing with the miraculous nature of, um, of the Gospels. We're talking about um, the ministry of Peter as he uh, moves through this. Um, Peter and John were there because they uh, it was common in those days for two people to uh, be required under the Jewish law to bear witness in the legal events that happened through the court. And so having these two individuals signified a level of, um, of legality that was here. Uh, we also see that this was also a form that Jesus had given to the apostles early in the ministry as he set them out in pairs, of, in, in pairs um, as they went into the different villages to spread the message of the kingdom uh, when Jesus was still walking on the earth. And so if you look at it, it really is a good plan for the movement of uh, individuals as they go about the work um, of God and serving him as God has called us to do. There's always that level of, of duality and pairs and the strength that is in two or three because it allows us to be able to do more than we could on our own. And uh, we see that, that, the God, that there's, a, there's a resemblance of a lot of the miracles in the book of Acts to some of the, uh, a lot of the miracles that happened uh, of Jesus that he did in the Gospels. Um, there is a difference, though, and the major difference here is that Peter is healing in the name and the power and authority of Jesus Christ. He is not healing in his own name. Whereas Jesus himself healed by his own authority um, through the agent and through his own agency, he didn't he didn't use any intermediaries. Uh, but here in this case, uh, the apostles were working and and moving in the name of Jesus and 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 seeking to heal in that light. And so we see that Peter and John were now gathered together, and they're in the temple. They came up there about the ninth hour, it was about three p.m. This was would have been the prime time for the prayer time at the time that this was happening. Jesus. Uh, not just uh, Peter and John and the apostles um, were engaged in a very Jewish uh, ritual. And you say, well, we're talking a lot about the Jews here. Um, does this have application to us? And I would say, yes, it does. And here's the reason why. Uh, first of all, the Bible says that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, correction, instruction, um, reproof, um, and instruction in righteousness. So, um, and I might have gotten, gotten those a little uh, off in my paraphrase, but you understand what I'm saying is that all scripture, and that means the New and the Old Testament, and, I, and because of that as a foundational verse as I study in the New Testament, um, one of the things that I've always believed, both in the Old and the New, is that all scripture has an element of historicity, has an element of spirituality, and an element of practicality. And I think that as we study this, um, we want to see the areas that it's historically interacting with the people and the culture that it's writing about. Uh, we also want to see how it impacted us spiritually as well as how it impacted those that were originally dealing with this um, and them spiritually. And then, of course, I believe that Scripture, because it is profitable for correction, instruction, and righteousness, reproof, and all those different things um, from Timothy, that... It's important for us to recognize that there is a level of practicality in every passage that we read. Now, I'm not talking about little passages. I'm talking about bulk passages as we give entire thoughts and we start to develop biblical theologies of, of how we walk and move through our daily lives. And so, that being said, I think this has a powerful impact. Now, the Jews at the time, they still had the temple. It had yet to be destroyed. And at the ninth hour, or about 3 p.m., the priest would offer the evening sacrifice to God. And it was 
common for the nation of Israel, for the men of Israel to come into the temple at that time to uh, pray and to devote themselves to God um, in that uh, form of worship as they were there, not only part of the sacrifice in the sense that they were doing it, but rather that they were partaking in the sacrificial moment as they were praying during the time of sacrifice. And and that's when uh, he came, and this is when the majority of the people that did this on a regular basis, the devout, God-fearing individuals, um, would have been in the temple at the time. And at this time, we see uh, in verse 2, the, the, we have an, uh, the lame man enters into this, this passion play, if you will, this, this experience, this moment. Um, and we now have this, this new character that we've never met before, but is about to change the shape and the flavor of the church in a very profound way. Um, and this is something that's really important to understand. Because um, this individual is going to is going to make an impact um, in, a, in a major way. Um, this lame man, according to chapter four, we know that he was lame for for over forty years. Uh, and in verse chapter four, verse twenty two, it says that he was lame for over forty years and that he was um, uh, constantly at that gate. Um, and so, this is an important thing. This is not a this is not a, 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 a psychosomatic moment. This is not a, a moment where this individual just felt weak. At the knees and couldn't stand for a few hours. This is an individual that was uh, attested to by the as by many many witnesses that he spent his entire life sitting at this gate asking for alms. And it's important to know that he was there doing that because the rabbis at the time were taught that there were three pillars of the Jewish faith. Um, the first pillar was the Torah, the Law, the first five books of of, of Moses. And worship was the second part, and then showing kindness and charity. So those are the three pillars that uh, you see that the Jewish society was was sort of built upon. And it was it was a great place to be in this particular place uh, at this hour because the majority of the people were be coming in. So more than likely, this man was able to uh, receive the kind of income that he needed to be able to pay for his existence. And so. This was sort of the mindset, the people that were entering in here at this time. They wanted to give generously. They knew that giving alms to this lame man or any beggar that was there uh, was uh, an act of charity and something that God looked kindly upon, especially during this time of evening sacrifice and prayer. And so that's why he was there. Now, there's something else here, too, that he was laid at a gate called Beautiful. Now, uh, there's a lot of people that have a lot of opinions about where this gate is. Unfortunately for us, we don't really know exactly where the gate was. We only have uh, opinions. We have some educated guests, guesses, and we have some other individuals that um, had lived through this that wrote some things about it that gave an indication of where this was at. Some people like to say it's the Eastern Gate. Um, that's the sort of the traditional idea, and I think the biggest reason why they liked the Eastern Gate was because Jesus is said to, to come back again and, and they would come back from the East. And so that, that sort of tends, that's the orientation of the temple, that sort of gives the idea that, that, that this is a more of a spiritual thing. But Scripture doesn't really say that. It calls it the Gate Beautiful. More than likely, this was one of the, um, uh, the gate between the, uh, the outer court and the inner courts. This would be um, this would be at the place where uh, the Gentiles would not be allowed past, and so this would move into the court of the women, and then the court of the men, and then of course the the temple complex itself. And so uh, this would be the closest place that a Jewish person could be 
that was unacceptable to be closer. Like, for instance, if there was a woman or a man that was physically not acceptable to God, like being lame for birth or having an issue of blood or having some other issues, this would be the farthest they could come. They could come closer than the Gentiles, but not closer than the women or the men that were acceptable in the sight of God. And so this was a powerful thing. So he was laid at this gate, the gate called Beautiful. Um, more than likely, this gate was uh, pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Uh, Josephus, who had seen the temple with his own eyes and wrote about it, talked about uh, this particular temple, uh, particular gate. Uh, there was uh, ten of them, and nine of them were overlaid in gold, but one was made of polished Corinthian brass or bronze, and it was the most it was the most beautiful gate that was there. It was so beautiful that the the craftsmen did not wish to mar or take away its beauty by overlaying it with gold like they did with the other the other um, doors. And so it was, a, it was a beautiful, beautiful door. Hence the name, the gate called Beautiful. And we see Peter and John, they're there. They're going into the temple. He begin, begins to ask to receive alms from them. And you get that beautiful and amazing phrase that just, it, it just rings in our ears, right? He says, silver and gold I have none, but what I do have I will give to you. And then Peter uh, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. So we see that word attenzio in, in Greek. It's like he's, he's, he's focusing all of his attention on this lame man. And he says, look at us. And, he be, and, and this man began to give them his full attention. And so we see the, the, the give and take. He, uh, Peter and John focuses their attention on him. He then focuses his attention back to them, expecting to receive something. And he says, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. I mean, that is a powerful moment. I tell you, it really is. Um, and this is something that I think is important to look at because the acts in, in the miracles that we find in the book of Acts were always miracles that were in the service of, of Jesus, in the service of the word. They were confirming the presence of the spread of the gospel as a sign that enabled that faith. And it's, it's, this, is, this is a prime example of that, right? I get nervous when somebody says, I have, a, I have the gift of healing or I have the gift of whatever. Um, I just I get nervous about that largely because I don't feel like that in this case those gifts are are given primarily and solely to like one person. In fact, if you asked me and, and asked me who healed this man, I would say without a doubt Jesus healed this man um, because Peter didn't do it. Peter was just a conduit. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He gave out the name of Jesus, right? And that's an important thing because here they are in the presence of this beautiful and amazing door. Um, they're at this inner gate, um, uh, right overlooking the beautiful temple uh, complex that, uh, that had been built. Uh, and we see that there are that there just is this beautiful moment. And, and Peter and John are looking at him. They're looking at this, this place. And they're saying to themselves, and this is important, right? I mean, they're, 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 they're saying, basically, there are more important things and more things that are precious than silver and gold. And there are some things that are just so beyond beauty and beyond the description of words that this is what we have to, to, to compare it to. You know, I, I think back in times when I've gone to some of my, the best vacations that my family have gone on are not really the vacations where we spent a lot of money. It's vacations where we usually went somewhere that was just a, a beautiful, natural moment. Um, the, 
the, the pounding of a waterfall, the, um, the, the smell of the rain after, after a cleansing rain, you know, the smell of the air. Uh, there, there are just some things that are just, that are just beyond description and are more precious to me and to our family than money or gold or silver. It's, it's these precious things that are there. And he's giving him something that is truly more precious than that. And by asking him, by, by, by commanding him to rise up and walk in the name of Jesus, he is giving the name of Jesus to this. And this command is, in, is important because the reference to this name um, is not incidental. It's not accidental. Um, in the biblical sense, a name had was far more than just a, a label or something we put on our driver's license. It represents an extension of a person's being and their personality. By invoking the name of Jesus, he was calling upon his authority and power to move at this moment. And Jesus said that he was able to do that. He says, I'm giving you all authority. Anything you ask in my name, I'm going to give it. This is one of several uh, miracles that were um, that were given out in the in the New Testament, specifically in the Book of Acts. We see Peter has a few. We see Paul has a few. We really we we know that there's a linkage between them. That Luke is writing uh, both the account of Peter and Paul. That a lot of the miracles are similar. Uh, to the miracles that um, happened earlier in the book with Peter as the ones that happened later in the book with Paul as there's a, a level of, of, of parody there that uh, Luke is trying to bring out. And so this is, this is incredibly important. And I think it's, this, is, this is moving into that, that section, well, so what, right? So what, what, so what difference does it make this man was given the, given the ability to walk? And we know that he was. Paul, uh, Luke talks about this. In fact, he writes it in his own uh, unique style. He says that uh, Peter reached down, grabbed him by, his, by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet, his feet and ankles were strengthened. Um, and I tell you, I've, I've worked in the medical field for years. And uh, we've got people here in the church that uh, do as well. And, uh, you know, anyone that's ever worked with anybody that has mobility issues will be the first one to tell you that that's what they pray for every day. They pray to be able to move. Um, I remember taking care of this one young man years ago. Uh, he was a, he had cerebral palsy. He had been uh, from birth, and he'd never been able to move. Uh, he had... Um, uh, he had pins in his legs and his spine to keep him upright and to be able to, to give him some level of rigidity. He could not walk. He was in a wheelchair. Um, he had just had limited mobility. And I, and I always felt uh, uh, sad for the guy because you know, he'd never had the experience to walk. And, and he was a Christian, and he talked about uh, Jesus a lot. He talked about the fact that it was one of the things he prayed for. And he, and he would read this passage with a different eye than I could read it. I remember talking to him about it uh, because we talked a lot when I was there um, uh, working with him. And one of the things that he talked about was the, the this this passage that says that his ankles and legs immediately uh, strengthened. You know, if you've not walked ever on your legs, I mean, he was lame from birth, right? He's never put weight on his feet at all. Um, his bones have never held him upright. Um, the, the chance that his bones and muscles would be strong enough to support his weight, however much he weighed, whether it was a little bit or a lot, was was unrealistic. There's no way that his bones would be strong enough to support that weight. Our bones grow in such a way that, that when, the more we use them, the stronger and the more, the more, the more mass they have on them. And so um, the muscle mattered. The, the bones mattered. The ankles mattered. And so I can only imagine what it looked like for this man who he, who may have had twisted up legs like the young man.
men that I dealt with that um, uh, had never had any pressure put upon them. And to see, almost, I can almost imagine in my head like a, like a rippling wave of, of muscle growth that sort of just flowed down this man's body from, his, from the top of his head all the way to the bottom of his feet. And, and, the, and it, just, it, would have been, it would have been transcendent. It would have been a moment that, would, that, that you know, everybody that saw it would have just stood back and went, Whoa, what had just happened? And of course, this guy... He freaked out too. He jumped up. The Bible says he leapt up. Um, and he leapt for joy, right? Look at that. He leapt up and stood upright. Um, with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking, <laughs> leaping, and praising God, right? Praising God. You know, that word that, he used, that, that, that Luke uses for leap there, or leaping, um, is the word in Greek, halomai, right? And that particular word was, it was used, uh, it's a very rare Greek word. It was not used hardly at all in the New Testament, like one other time in the New Testament. And this word comes from a passage in Isaiah, which we're going to read a little later in the sermon, but it's Isaiah 35, verse 6. And it says, the lame will leap for joy, right? And so there's a leaping that's there. But I want to focus on what he's leaping for, why he's leaping and praising God. Um, obviously, all the people saw him walking and they were and praising God and they were taking note of that and there was a wonder and amazement that was happening. But this is something that's, that you, we don't want to just flow past this, right? We all want to get to Peter's sermon. We always want to get to the next step. We love that last part where more people are going to come to know Jesus because of this and, and, the, and the church grows and it's an exciting moment. But we can't get past this. We can't just leap past this, if you will, because this is a powerful moment. I had mentioned earlier that this was the closest that anybody that was unacceptable could go. Lepers wouldn't have been able to get this far, but people that were, that were broken like this or had uh, physical deformities or abnormalities, this is the closest they could get to worship God. If you were to give an example of this, um, it would be like um, somebody that was stuck in the parking lot of the church. They might be able to get right up to the doors, and like if we opened up the front doors and held them open and we turned up the speakers really loud, or we opened the windows and, and, and the speakers in here were loud enough and you could have the, the sound of the service sort of echoing out, this would, that would be what it would be like. Somebody that was stuck outside. They just weren't able to come in to worship. And I'm not saying they weren't able to come to worship like on like this week or or maybe for three or four weeks in a row or for some of those that some of us that were that have been struggling with um, concerns about COVID you know they haven't really been in church to speak of since last you know last March when all this really started um, you know there'd be something along those lines I mean, you could say it would be like that but even worse I mean think about this this individual from his birth has never been physically acceptable to worship God in God's house Never. Never in his life had he ever had the privilege of being able to move closer to the God he loved. The God who he wanted to serve. The God that he wanted to be near. There's lots of places this man could have gone to beg. This was the place that, for whatever reason, he chose. I like to think he chose this because he wanted to be closer to God. That he wanted to be closer to um, to, to, to the God that he loved. I mean, he could have went down to that, that pool where the other lame man that was healed by Jesus, the pool of Siloam, that um, tradition had that the first person that got in the water would be healed. I mean, for a guy that was, was lame for over 40 years, that would be a place I wouldn't mind going. 
This man was given the gift of being able for the first time to be deemed worthy to enter the house of worship. This theme that Luke is bringing out is the theme that is repeated over and over and over again into the book of Acts because we want the message to go out that those that were rejected and unworthy for worship in the old religion of Israel have found finally acceptance under the name of Jesus Christ. Whether you're a blame leper, an Ethiopian eunuch, a woman or a Gentile, it doesn't matter who or what you were, everyone that calls upon the name of Jesus Christ to be saved and you are accepted from that moment on. And that's a powerful statement. That is something that, that transcends anything that we can understand. This man was given life. This man begged from a position of powerlessness. He begged as boldly as he could. He wanted. He wanted something. But I think the deepest secret of his heart, the deepest part of his heart, is he wanted healing. This man was at this temple for 40 years. He was there daily. The same temple that Jesus went to and did his miracles. The same temple that Jesus overturned the money changers' tables. The same temple that Jesus was taken to for trial. The same area that Jesus would have stomped around for three years in his ministry. And for whatever reason, this individual was not chosen as a candidate to be healed by Jesus. I wonder if this man had that in the back of his head. I mean, how many times do we read about an individual in the life of Jesus as he was ministering directly to people and children of Israel? How many times do we read that he walked past and somebody cried out, Son of David, or, or Jesus, heal me, or please give me something, right? I wonder how many times that happened. We're only given a small snapshot, a window into the life of Jesus. It's such a, it's so incomplete and it's so tiny. Even John mentions that if we knew everything, we could fill all the books that are in the world, all the libraries would be, would be too small to contain all the things that he said and all the, and all the things that he did. Now I realize that's pretty hyperbolic, but, um, but it's still pretty profound too. This individual, for whatever reason, was chosen to wait. And I can only imagine him sitting here saying that, you know, I, I had the chance, but Jesus is now dead. And here comes his apostles. And that name probably went like electricity through his veins. The man leapt for joy. That rare word, halomai. He jumped and leapt with an excitement that goes beyond exp explanation. And then scripture says all the people saw him walking and praising God and they were taking note of him as being the one who sat at the gate beautiful and would beg for alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Wonder and amazement. Those words in the Greek are akin to, an, to almost like ecstasy. That idea of wonder and amazement. If you were to, to translate it like, like accurately, not accurately, but just like word for word kind of concept here, that would give us a, a more clear picture. It would be almost like a violent, 
amazement, but but violence seems like a negative word. But in this case, it would be it would be a positive word. It would be it would be like a just an extreme amount of amazement. I guess I I don't know. English is hard. We don't have the kind of words that, that they had in Greek to be able to bring this out. And then we see that this is a beautiful moment where all these people are gathered together. And look what it says in verse 11. It'll sort of set up where we're going to go later on um, when we talk about the, uh, uh, on Wednesday, when we talk about uh, the message, or maybe when we get into Mike's uh, class, we'll talk a little more about this. But in verse 11, that transition verse, it says, And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran to them, and uh, to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement, greatly wondering. They all gathered together. But right in the beginning of that verse is, it says, while he was clinging to them. That word in Greek is, is kratio. It means to seize and to hold with, with like fierceness, like to not let go. He did not want to let go of these individuals because they were the instruments of his life. It was the instruments that he has of moving forward. Now, I know a lot of us are asking, well, what you've given us the practical. You've ta- touched on the spiritual side of this a little bit. What is the practical side? So, so what? How can we move forward? What is the direction we're going? You know, I, I alluded to this a moment ago when I said that this man was begging from a position of powerlessness. You know, the reality is, is that all of us have a level of, or especially before we came to know Christ, we have a level of, of power, powerlessness and hopelessness. We know there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves. This man knew that there was no way he was ever going to walk, at least not under his own authority and his own power. And he begged from the Christians boldly. And these individuals came to him, and they proclaimed the name of Jesus, but they proclaimed even more boldly this individual. This man was not gifted with any measure of faith or, or anything else they could have. There was no skill the man had. I mean, literally he's been sitting here for, for 40 years, uh, begging for alms. He, he's not a carpenter. He's not a plumber. He's not an electrician. He's not anybody that can be uh, immediately useful to the church. Uh, you often wonder why Jesus would do this. Jesus did this because he had a purpose beyond this, right? Because Jesus was there. He was present in his name. There was power in his name. And this verse, this, this, this passage tells us that this man needed what Jesus had. And the people needed to see that Peter and John were carrying on the mission and work of Jesus in the temple and in the community. And that comes to another point, right? What in the world were they doing there, right? Not only were they just praying, but why were they there? You know, this is something I think it's important. If we're, as Christians, as, as we are gathering together, and I, I recognize most of the people that are in here, and I know that um, I know your stories, and I, I would have to say if, if, if I were a judge, which I'm not, um, I, would, I would probably say that most everybody in here is saved. I know it's not always true, um, but the thing that we have to remember is, is that there's always a, a step after, right? There's a mission that we, are, that we are called to, something that we are being taken to, a place where God wants to bring us um, to where we might be able to be that witnesses with power and authority as we carry forward. And we see that it begins with that idea of compassion, right? Um, Paul and uh, Peter and John were, were moved with compassion. The compassion they saw in Jesus. And this compassion led Peter and John to want to share the gospel 
to this individual. Is this compassion to meet this man's needs on a spiritual and physical level? They did. They allowed him for the first time to worship in his entire life. It was such, it was such a transcendent spiritual moment. The man didn't want to end. He wouldn't stop. And they went into the temple. They did their worship and they came out. Somewhere between verse 9 and verse 11, they moved into the temple and then back out because we know where, this, where the porch of Solomon was. And it was outside. It was a large area. Yeah, past the court of the Gentiles. It would have been a place where anyone could have gathered. It was a large area that would have been perfect for the setting of the, of the message that Peter had. So compassion moved Peter and John to do this. This individual received the riches of a new life. He received redemption. And then, and then Peter and John and the rest of the individuals that were called by the name of Christ to serve him were given, were, 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 I don't want to say re-given, but they were had that the mission that was given to them. And in Matthew, um, in the end of Matthew, they were given that mission to go to those in need, right? We're talking about neighbors and nations. This is how we grow a church. We start with the neighbors and we move to nations. We, we grow in that area. We need to see that this is an important thing. Not only did Jesus enable this man by his power to become more mobile, to be more of a witness to his uh, powerful work in this man's life, but also it was a mission that Peter used to be able to go on to re- to, to share this, the, the, to, to meet the needs of those people that he would go to. This is an important moment, right? This is something that goes beyond just a simple understanding of what's happening here. We need to understand this in the light of, of, of a practical sense, right? Peter and John and the rest of the apostles were gathering together where the people were gathering. A military term that is often used to define this is something called a center of gravity. When you're looking for centers of gravity, this is a concentrations of where the enemy are gathering or where the people themselves gather. Now, we know where the enemy gathers. The enemy gathers everywhere that there are people, right? And we know that the enemy is alive and active in this world. The Bible says he's a roaring lion, he's, uh, roaming throughout the world, seeking whom he may devour, but we also know that in those pockets of humanity, those, those centers of gravity where people congregate together, that's the place that we can have the most impact. We are not called to, to have healing services here in this church. If God truly gave me the gift of healing, I'd go down to the hospital and I'd go room to room and clear it out. And then when that, when that was done, as soon as it got filled up again, I'd go back to the hospital and clear it out again. I would make the hospital go broke. They would have to, they would have to pay me. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, it would be a, a different world altogether, right, if we had those kind of things. I don't believe that the church necessarily is a place where, where we gather people in that need uh, physical healing so much as this is a place of renewal. This is our house, right? This is where we gather together to get charged up and to, to move out into a community of hopelessness. We need to go where the people are gathering. We need to minister to people that are there. We do that by meeting the needs of people that are lost, by, by reaching out, by working in our, 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 um, our Way Cafe where we have the opportunity to, to bring food to those that need it, to be able to reach into the lives of individuals, uh, whether we're, uh, we're filling up somebody's wood pile or whether we're doing practical things. This is what God has called us to do, is to meet the needs of those around us. Remember, nations and neighbors, neighbors and nations. We need to seek those centers of gravity and bring the gospel there. We can't expect that people are going to show up here. That's the old way of doing things. You know, a lot of people just believed over the years that if you if you build a beautiful building, you had a nice looking sanctuary, you sang some pretty songs, and you had some good musicians, um, that people would just show up. And they'd just come. 
And maybe in the 70s they did, in the early Jesus movement. Maybe in other times in, in church history they did that. But we're not in that age right now where people just show up off randomly on a regular basis. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it doesn't happen on a regular basis. So we need to be active about going where the lost people are. Peter and John were going where the lost people were. He was going to the people they were trying to witness to. He was going to their target group. They were going into an area of people to where people needed to hear the message. This is what we're called to do. But there's another message that's also here too. So some of us identify with different characters in the story, right? Some of us identify with Peter and John. Some of us identify with the individuals that sat and listened to the sermon that Peter preached in the later part of this chapter. Some of us identify with some of the lesser-known apostles that sort of sat around like John did and, and just sort of prayed and watched the activity of those that were uh, more gifted than they, maybe. Some of us identify with the lame man that couldn't walk. I can tell you this, whoever you identify with in this story, there's power in that identification. If you identify with Peter, you need to know this. That Peter was a broken, used up man. We see that in the gospel. Especially at the end of Jesus' ministry. Scripture talks about the fact that when, when Jesus was being carried from one trial to another, that he was passing the courtyard right about the time that Peter denied Jesus the third time. And Peter saw him. It's a powerful thing. Peter had given up any hope of being a valuable asset to the kingdom of God. At the end of the book of John, it says that he was done. He got up and said, well, it's been a nice run. You boys have a lot of work to do. I need to get out of your way. I'm going to go back and do what I know how to do. I'm a pretty decent fisherman, or at least I'm trying to be. You know, and people always ask me, "Well, were the were the were the were the, uh, were the, were the, the apostles good fishermen?" I don't know. They fed their families. I'm sure they were good, but every time we see them, they weren't catching any fish until Jesus showed up. But he said, "I'm going to go back and do what I do best. I'm going to go fish." A few of the other apostles said, "Yeah, let's go with you." Evidently, they were broken as well. Bible says that on the shores, after a night of fishing, on the shore, Jesus appeared to them and called out to them and said, Hey, what you doing? You know the story. Well, cast your net one more time. Well, I don't know if we should do that. There's no fish. They did it. They followed him and they pulled in more fish than they could handle. Peter immediately recognized that was Jesus. Scripture says that he gathered up his, his cloak tied himself up, jumped in the water, and swam ashore, leaving the rest of the apostles that were in the boat to, to get the catch in. He needed that time to spend with Jesus. I find it interesting that nowhere in any of the New Testament do we have a recounting of that conversation. It's one of the things I look forward to asking Peter about. I'd like to know what he said to Jesus. I'd like to know the tenderness that Jesus responded to Peter with. I'd like to be able to know what was said. I may never know. 
I may go throughout the rest of eternity and Peter may keep that as a precious secret for himself as a moment of just between him and Jesus. And that's fine. Peter's welcome to do that if that's possible in heaven. The Bible says we'll be known as we're known, but, but maybe we'll know, maybe we won't. I don't know. All we have is what Jesus recorded in the book of John. And it was during that time that Jesus gave John the opportunity to three times renew his association with Jesus. When he asked him three times, do you love me? There was a level of restoration that took place. And the Peter that we see at the end of the Gospels is not the Peter we see here in the Acts of the Apostles. This is a different Peter altogether. This is a Peter that's speaking from a place of power a power that the Spirit has imbued him with, a sense of authority and purpose, a mission. This is a Peter that reached into the life of a man who desperately was hurt, lost, lonely, and tired, hungry for something he didn't even know what it was. And he gave him something that he desperately needed but didn't even realize it. He gave him healing. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you love him with all your heart and soul, this should be our first and primary mission. How can we reach to those that need to hear the message? How can we give the level of hope to a world that has lost its hope? How can we reach into a people and say, you can be more if you only let Jesus use you? This is our calling. We are called to a level of compassion. We are called to a level of mercy to bring redemption to the world. Not our redemption, but His redemption. His restoration. We have a mission to go into all the world. If you're sitting here today and you're listening to this online or if you're in the building today, I can tell you this. If you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, you are just like that lame man. You are broken and you have no hope of being acceptable in the temple of God. There's no way you can get past where you're at. Whether you're watching online or you're sitting here in this building, this is as close as you'll ever get to God if you don't accept Jesus as your Savior. This is the part of the thing right here where it says, you know, the Bible says, for grace are we saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's nothing that you can do to save yourself. That's the first and most important thing we talk about in salvation. This is nothing that we can do on our own. This is something that only God can do in us and through us. He did that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At his death, he took on our sin. He was buried, and the third day, God raised him from the dead. He is, a, he is evidence of the first fruits. He is that individual that is giving us the proof that we need, that there is no doubt. We're going to talk about this in the coming weeks, about there being no doubt that he rose from the grave. There is no doubt in my mind, there's no doubt, period, that Jesus rose from the grave. And because he did, we know we can. He was the first among many brethren. He was the first one to be raised. We know that we will be given that eternal life. Jesus says that I, 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 I'm giving you these things that you might know that you know that you have eternal life. This is something that's been precious and important. So there, you need to understand there's no way you can save yourself. Just like there was no way this lame man could walk on his own. It's only in the name of the power, in the name and the authority and the power of Jesus Christ that we have the ability to do that. So by calling on Jesus and calling Him Lord, recognizing that He's Lord, recognizing that our sin is, is, is insurmountable, repent from our sin, 
turn towards God. Seek Him. Accept the gift that God is giving you as freely as possible. There is no strings attached other than the fact that you belong to Him. It's almost like enlisting in the military. You no longer have the right to your own person once you sign on that dotted line and you say that oath. You're now in the military. When you, when you say the oath and sign on that dotted line, when you, when, you, when you accept Christ your Savior, you belong to Him. And He sets the orders. He sets the mission. He tells us what to do. He says, you will go where I tell you to go and do what I tell you to do. It's a precious and powerful thing. One thing we didn't get a chance to do this evening was to read, or this morning, was to read in Isaiah chapter 35. But I encourage you to read Isaiah 35, especially verse 6 this week. Meditate on it. Ponder it. Isaiah chapter 35 is all about the millennial reign of Jesus. It's about the coming kingdom. And it's about the progressiveness of it. And it, and it, does, it does move in that direction. I encourage you if, you, if you were looking for a passage to study this week and, and you know and love Jesus with all your heart and soul, I encourage you to look at Isaiah 35 verse, uh, verse 6 and all the, all the verses really. If you don't know Jesus Christ your Savior, then you need to get that fixed today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't wait. In a moment, we're going to close in prayer. We're going to have some uh, closing music time. Then we're going to move into our time of communion for those that are in the building. Uh, for the rest of you that are watching online, I encourage you to, um, uh, to be praying this week and to uh, focus on what God's called you to do. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, please reach out to someone online. Send us a private message to the church. Uh, we would be more than happy to share with you what God's Word says about how to be saved. Um, if you're here today, we have a time. We're going to open up the altar. We're going to ask you to come. And then after that, we're going to move into our time of communion. So let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer, and I'll leave it, uh, I'll leave it in your hands. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the mercy and grace that you've given us. We thank you for the privilege to be able to stand in your presence today and to love you and to serve you. Father, I just ask if there's anyone in here that's like that man, that lame man, that doesn't know you, that, that has never accepted you as their Savior, that is broken and tired and hopeless, helpless. Father, I ask that you will not let them leave here today without getting their heart right. Father, is anyone watching online or hearing the sound of this sermon that needs to know more? Father, I ask that you'll move in their heart and their life. Um, divinely call them. Draw them to you, Lord. Give them an opportunity to reach out to someone, whether it's someone as part of our church or someone that they know um, personally that has the spiritual answers. Father, I ask that you'll give them the strength they need to draw closer to you. Father, we ask now that you'll guide us and direct us and seek to seek you and to love you. Father, we ask that you'll give us this courage to stand firm in the coming days. And Lord, we just ask as we close our service that you'll give us an opportunity to be your witnesses, not only here, in this community, in this church, in this, in this area, but beyond, Lord, as we seek to serve you in the mission you've given us through compassion, a desire to see reconciliation and redemption in the world around us, and a deep passion to fulfill the mission you've given us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask all these now in the name of your Son and our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to encourage you guys to, uh, uh, to worship. And the altar is open as we um, go before him now in time of worship.